0: Welcome to the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast, the show that brings leading minds from the energy industry to discuss the challenges and trends that are transforming and modernizing our energy system. And a quick thank you to Wes Monroe, our sponsor of today's show. Now, let's talk energy. I'm Jason Price, Energy Central podcast host and director with West Monroe, coming to you from New York City. And with me, as always, from Orlando, Florida, is Energy Central producer and community manager Matt Chester. In the U.S., there are 18 national labs, each committed to pioneering work in their respective fields. Many of these labs were established after World War II to continue research and further our understanding of our complex world. Much of what is commercialized today and exists in the background of our everyday lives finds its roots from the men and women who work at or once served in the national labs. The question of energy security is top of mind on today's episode. We're going to meet the people who are looking at trying to forecast and plan for the energy future. What will supply and demand look like? Where will supply come from? How will it function in the society of tomorrow? Many of the top minds trying to answer these questions come from Idaho National Lab. It's the lab's specific quest to address nuclear energy, national security, energy, and the environment. And as the work is done, we're aiming on this podcast to bring on leading experts who can provide insight for our listeners on these difficult questions. So Matt, today we actually have the good fortune to have another conversation with leaders from INL. But before we dig in, can you give us a rundown of previous guests who have been on our show from Idaho National Lab. Sure, Jason. Yeah, we we learned uh, about how nuclear power and microgrid technology can make an ideal pairing with uh, John C. Kandasamy and Kurt Myers back in episode 108. And then on episode 118, Timothy Pennington joined us to discuss the ways in which INL is working towards the EV charging infrastructure future. And now we get to add uh, today's episode to this list. Yes, Idaho National Lab has indeed been a welcome presence on this podcast, and today it's actually a two-for-one, as we also have a guest joining us from the nation's leading academic department focused on nuclear energy found at the University of Michigan. These two guests are here today to discuss some envelope-pushing innovation they've been collaborating on, known as the Emerging Energy Markets Analysis. First, we have Steve Allmeyer. Senior Advisor on Strategic Programs at Idaho National Laboratory. Steve, welcome to today's episode.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jason. Appreciate the invitation.
0: And we also have Todd Allen, the Professor and Department Chair at the University of Michigan's Department of Nuclear Engineering and Radiological Sciences and Founding Director of their Fastest Path to Zero initiative. Thanks for joining us today, Todd. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Glad to be part of the conversation. Absolutely, and we're thrilled to have you on. Before we get into it, I'd love if we could have more context on the Emerging Energy Markets Analysis Initiative at Idaho National Lab. Steve, can you please provide the context? How did this program start and what are the initiative's main goals?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The initiative's uh, been around for a few years now. The idea really came about around uh, Christmas time in 2019. We were having a conversation with uh, John Wagner, who is now the lab director of Idaho National Lab. And and we were talking a little bit about how the lab could and probably should develop a a deeper capability to help both lab and also stakeholders kind of get ahead of all the various issues surrounding uh, energy transitions and especially the transitions being driven by more interest and more demand for for low and zero uh, emission uh, energy and and really trying to understand how that would impact technologies, technologies that we're developing, but also how it might impact communities, uh, especially our surrounding communities. Talked a lot about what has worked in that area, in that realm, what hasn't worked, importantly really talked a lot about what is key to really make an impact in understanding energy transitions and came to the conclusion that building that sort of deep competency really depended principally on being able to take a multifaceted multidisciplinary look at at the problems at the challenge not just about technology but being able to understand the social uh, dimensions of, of energy transitions, being able to better understand the finance and really very importantly, how business innovation has to intersect technology innovation and also how regulatory innovation is gonna come into that. Really what we're talking about is the need to understand value, holistic value propositions. Around energy choices and and, and especially community-centric uh, value propositions, and really what we came to is is a realization that what better way to do that is to build partnerships with some of the best minds from a from a number of different fields. So by late 2020, you know, right in the heart of the dreaded COVID lockdowns, uh, Emma was born. And it was born really uh, to provide insight and analyses, thought leadership to help both laboratory, but mostly help communities, companies, and other other stakeholders make value-based decisions about energy and and really very interesting and important energy-based economic development. So that's how Emma came about, been around now for going on three years and, and making a lot of difference, I think.
0: Fantastic. Very helpful. Thank you. And speaking of top minds, we have with you, uh, one of your colleagues is Todd Allen. So, Todd, with your role being centered on nuclear energy at the University of Michigan, how did you get involved with
2: Emma? Yeah, thanks. So, as background, it, it's important to know Steve and I have known each other since grad school, right? So, we've been working on things together on and off for the past 30 years. So, we had we had a good working relationship to start with. I came to the University of Michigan in January of 2019. I had a very specific goal in starting the Fastest Path Initiative, which was to get academic nuclear engineering departments in the country to think beyond technology, right? You're gonna deploy nuclear technology. Developing the, the engineering part, the technical part's important, but academic departments in the US did not address things like social, economics, other things. Right, So I started this initiative to really help push our department in that that direction. Just before Emma got started, Steve and I co-wrote a paper on issues in science and technology that was aimed at well, what's the future of nuclear energy, what's necessary to make it make it successful. And so when Steve posed the idea of Emma, I just it made a lot of sense for us to join. We had a very top nuclear engineering department. He was able to bring in partners at University of Alaska and University of Wyoming that are in states that are sort of pushing the the boundaries of how we might deploy nuclear technology and I think it just a lot of things made a lot of sense for me to to join the partnership because it aligned with things we wanted to do and it allowed us to help the lab right who in many cases have a bigger voice than the universities.
0: And if I understand this, the secret sauce or special sauce of EMMA is bringing together global leaders in various fields, including engineering and technology, social science, law, economics, natural resource policy, cultural studies, public and regulatory policy, and stakeholder engagements to provide more of a holistic view of the energy markets of the future with an innovative perspective. So, Steve, we'll start with you. Why is this approach so unique and why hasn't this already been done before?
1: So backing up a little bit on uh, building a bit on on what Todd mentioned about the nature, uh, the complexity in energy transitions, and especially with the the states that he mentioned with Alaska and Wyoming. So by its very nature, energy touches everything we do, right? So by its nature, it's highly multidisciplinary. It should be something that's looked at through a highly multidisciplinary lens. It isn't always approached like that. Now the lab is really good at technology, right? We're all about technology, we do that really well. But energy markets and especially changes in those markets are like Todd was saying, it's more than about technology. We need to consider what's really acceptable, what's practical not just at a national level, not just at a state level, but a local level. And then how do all those local considerations really get put together? And I think some people do that well on small scales, but we really want to do that, uh, develop a team that can be tapped in to do that on on a much bigger scale. What's really important isn't just the disciplines that that our team brings to the table. It's really deep understanding that they bring. So what do I mean by that? The states, the participants that we brought together with Emma really are experts that are within communities like Todd mentioned are right in the middle of, of energy transitions that are touching the fundamentals of their communities the fundamentals of their economics fundamentals of their their state budgets which touches everything so having having experts that aren't only experts in their field but are living the various aspects of, of energy transitions was really important i think that's that's fairly unique with emma as an ongoing uh, enterprise so it's it's not just about the skill that's brought to the table. It's a lot about the perspective that these folks bring. You know, there's an old saying that, that goes that uh, innovators change the lens through which they see the world. I'd like to think of Emma uh, as an innovator's lens. Yeah,
0: I would agree. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even describe it as almost like a, an exercise in scenario writing of what the future would look like. And it's a it's, uh... It's something that, I mean, even like Hollywood, the industry of Hollywood looks at. What does the world's future look like? And then creating, you know, a whole uh, storyline or movie line behind that. There's also scenario writing presents opportunities to really think in, you know, multidimensional ways to portray what the future will look like. So I want to pull on that thread a little bit, if I may. You know, we focus on things like the grid mix and the ability of the power sector to meet rising demand. But you're also exploring the unique economic and social conditions that may not be getting enough attention. Can you share with us some of the example outcomes that you have come from you know this initiative? What new perspectives have you been able to bring to those focus on energy markets? Maybe Steve, again we can start with you and
1: then certainly Todd chime in. Yeah, Jason, I think I think what you said about scenario writing, it's really about being able to help people see beyond maybe what they see today. There's a couple really great examples of how we've gone about that, the process for going about that, but also when different communities and folks have reached out to us uh, to actually ask us to do that. So let's talk about some specifics on how we've been able to do that. A couple studies come to mind. First of all, studies that our team members have done. One study I think has has had uh, been very helpful for people in Alaska and people wanting to do business in Alaska to uh, take a look at micro nuclear reactor applications in in different types of markets, both grid markets, remote industrial markets and and community markets. And that study was led by our colleagues at uh, the uh, MIT Sloan School. It looked at essentially would micro reactors uh, be competitive with existing ways of providing heat and power in those various markets long story short there they're very competitive what was interesting with that mit study is they asked the question at, at what capital cost would they be competitive so they didn't make a lot of assumptions about what new technologies were going to cost they simply said what is the cost ceiling and what we found is in all three of those deployment cases you had a very a competitive technology with micro reactors. Now let's look at a, a, another study that one of, one of Todd's colleagues at the University of Michigan did. It got a lot of attention uh, and it focused on whether micro reactors and small nuclear reactors might be a competitive advantage as we look at fuel switching in heavy transportation. What do I mean by that? You know, as we begin to, to shift heavy trucking from diesel fuel to either electric or hydrogen, how might small reactors fit into that? So Michael Craig at the University of Michigan uh, and his students did a really interesting study on what the financial dimensions that would be. And bottom line, it showed that in certain circumstances, micro reactors would be quite competitive. We've done a couple different studies on community, I don't wanna say community acceptance, but community views on both nuclear energy in general, but also this unique question of, you know, do those views shift if that nuclear generator is not a a grid service device, but rather it's a nuclear reactor embedded within an industrial facility powering, say either a mine or a, a chemical plant. So our colleagues at University of Wyoming led some work that's still underway, taking a look at the community acceptance, uh, especially uh, in that Wyoming market. We're just getting focused right now on what I think is gonna be uh, some really very interesting studies on nuclear applications in mining, and especially uh, how that can impact the economic competitiveness in Arctic mining markets. In fact, our EMMA team, along with some others, have a, uh, a panel session accepted at the Arctic Circle Assembly. It's gonna be in Reykjavik, Iceland here in, in about a month and a half, two months. That's really exciting. I think we're gonna, we're gonna see quite a lot out of that. And we've done a lot, Jason, in simply having conversations with community groups that have been interested in learning more and specifically about nuclear energy in context, these energy transitions. One of those actually, Todd and I uh, participated in the town of Gillette, Wyoming. The mayor and, and the local some of the local industrial companies invited us to have a conversation with the community about, about energy transitions and, and how nuclear energy of tomorrow might fit and how they might view applications. So in a short two and a half years, we've actually done quite a lot, I think, uh, I think we've made, a, made an impact so far. That's
0: great. So Todd, your background is, and you're, you're specifically focused on the nuclear energy sector, so let's hear from you. What are your thoughts on uh, what uh, Steve shared? And also just, you know, nuclear, as we all know, has been around for quite some time. It's an old new technology, I guess you could say. Uh, what changes do you anticipate coming from the sector, and what sort of new, refreshed perspectives should we all have with nuclear energy?
2: Yeah, thanks, Jason. That's a great question. So if you look at the first commercial generation of nuclear power plants, essentially one product, it was a very large electricity producing machine, right? We incentivized utilities to build those in the 60s, 70s, 80s. when We were building a lot of plants. But I mean, my view is the energy system is, is changing a lot. right? And it's easy to see this in electricity. Right? Think about when I was a kid. It was pretty simple. We had these large central station power plants. They made electricity, they sent it over the transmission and distribution wires to people's homes. Now we've got variable sources like solar and wind, taking advantage of the fact that the costs have come down a lot. They're coming on and off the grid. You need to balance that somehow with storage or baseload or demand response. And so you end up with a lot of different types of products that are new and needed. to to make this system work. And so at the moment, I think a combination of climate change, need to go to lower carbon, zero carbon production options, energy security issues that have really been exacerbated by the Russian invasion in Ukraine, combined with the fact that there's a lot of different types of energy products that we need. You see a large number of nuclear companies, sort of innovators in the space, that are looking at different deployment scenarios. Instead of one commercial product, you see multiple, right, large electricity, small electricity, individual user electricity, dedicated heat, combined heat and power sort of go through the list. And Steve talked about this in, in some of the examples, this idea of how are you going to provide charging inf- infrastructure for heavy-duty trucking. That's a very different scenario that we never had to do before. And so you have all these types of new products, and nuclear engineers are trying to figure out how to fit into that. But in order to fit in, they have to develop the technology that makes sense, that the market wants. It's got to be affordable. It's got to be socially acceptable. And how much of a technology gets deployed can be influenced by public policy levers. And so if you look at the Emma approach, it says we need to look at all those things. We need to look at technology. We need to look at economics. We need to look at social acceptance. We need to look at public policy levers. And I think it's sort of of the moment in the sense that that's what nuclear engineering needs to do to be relevant in the future. And so I think Emma fits right in, in a very nice way. You know,
0: Todd, when we were doing the research uh, leading up to this podcast, on your website, you have a a video and a narrative around, I guess you could call it, the Korean model. Um, So switching gears for a moment, what both of you and what Emma's trying to achieve Seems to, if I'm understanding correctly, does exist outside of the United States and perhaps Korea is maybe personifying some of that. Can you talk about that? Share with us the Korean model with our audience a little bit.
2: Yes, for me, what's really fascinating about Korea is when they decided to make their initial investment in nuclear energy. This would have been post World War II. And you go visit Korea now, and it's a it's a modern you know, industrialized country, and it is not what it was like upon World War II. They, they were not as wealthy a country, but they made this national decision, this national commitment to nuclear energy. And while that helped provide them energy over the years, also they developed skills in things like heavy manufacturing, right? And that allowed them to move into international commerce and things that are bigger and beyond nuclear energy. So there was a long-term commitment from the country to the technology that paid off in ways that might have been bigger than originally envisioned. And I think, you know, to some of the, the studies that Steve talked about before, it's not exactly a, a direct parallel, but hey, okay, this idea that you in the US we could build new types of nuclear energy plants really only makes sense if you think about what are the what are the deployment scenarios, what are the partnerships between the energy you produce and a manufacturing or another business opportunity for a, a community, right? And I think what you know, Steve has tried to get the, the Emma team to look at are those combinations, those deployment, deployment scenarios. And so I think the starting point of this discussion is different in that the US has a fairly well and robust set of national labs, industry, regulator, academic institutions. So we're starting at a very different point than the Koreans might have in, in World War II. But we have this opportunity to really pivot how we think about the technology and how it influences how we move forward in manufacturing and all of the jobs and things that go along with that. I think there's a lot of things we can be inspired by in what they did in Korea. I don't think it necessarily is as big a shift or as big a build for us because of the foundations that we already have. Great, and uh, before we go to the next question, I don't know,
1: Steve, if you want to add to that. Yeah, I would. I yeah, think. Todd's spot on and I would I would just amplify what he mentioned about the importance of, of really digging into these, these deployment scenarios. So what I'd like to remind people when we talk about energy is I really don't care that much about what technology we're talking about first order. What I wanna talk about is what do you wanna do with the energy? What do you wanna achieve? How's it gonna give you a, a better way of life? How's it gonna give you a competitive advantage? What does a group of people, what is a stakeholder, what does a community want to uh, achieve in economic terms? And then let's talk about all of this, this multi-dimensional richness of understanding what value a given energy source or technology brings to that. So yeah, we like to think first about what do you wanna achieve and then Let's talk about
0: the technology. I want to ask you about the sense of urgency that seems to underlie Emma. If we look at throughout history, energy has always been a top issue. It's, you know, it helps define our self-determination as a country. And remember as a kid in the 1970s, uh, the long lines of of, um, gas at the gas station. So energy is always an issue whether now with climate change and other, but, you know, it's always been top of mind. However, there is a sense of urgency that um, Emma conveys. So my question to both of you, and Todd, let's start with you. Why now? Why is there this sense of urgency that uh, is really pushing Emma into the forefront or more into the national conversation?
2: Yeah, I I think you, you sort of pointed us in the right direction in the way you framed the question, right? I mean, over the history of people, we always want energy, right? Energy makes our lives better. And we always want it to be cleaner, more affordable. Uh, We want it to be resilient slash reliable, right? We want it on when we want it. If it goes away accidentally, we want it to come back right away. I think in the last few years, we've started to talk more about uh, equity and how we distribute the benefits and the costs of uh, using energy. I I think part of the reason why it seems very um, important right now are climate And the need to move to zero carbon systems. If you look at the history of using energy, we always have moved towards lower carbon systems. If You're transitioning from like whale blower to wood, to coal, to gas, to renewables, to nuclear. That's our general trend trajectory. But I think at the moment, the science is making it clear that we need to figure out how to make that happen faster. So I think that's one. And in a lot of cases, I think that's brought people back into the conversation around nuclear energy that may have dismissed it 40 years ago. I think energy security is the other. I I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine has made this very visible for people, uh, especially in Europe, but I think being able to control your own destiny is very important. And so I think the combination of those two things is really pushing on the need for an energy transition. Then you you have the federal government do things like pass the inflation uh, reduction act, right? As an example, they're putting a lot of money into helping industry, right? Kickstart this transition, right? Build better products. So in the end, if we're gonna use more clean energy, we have to build products that people really want, right? And so the, the government is pushing on this. I think a lot of things have come together. In addition to that, you have know, a lot of companies, right? They're willing to invest with private funds in these new products. For a lot of my career, The nuclear energy enterprise was more of a research enterprise. It was a lot of work at the national labs and things. And I think these companies see there is this opportunity in new types of nuclear products, and they're they're pushing the system in that direction. So I think all these things have come together to make this, for me at least, a very unique time compared to the previous 30 years of my career. Sure. That's very interesting and very compelling. Steve?
0: if you could chime in on that, but give us a non-nuclear, you know, perspective. What else? I mean, it's broader than just nuclear. So, give us a, a perspective of Emma's goals and all this, if you if you don't
1: mind. Yeah, it is broader than than just nuclear energy, but that's really why what Todd just put his finger on is is so important. It, it's absolutely right. What's what gives us a sense of urgency, not just on the nuclear energy side. You know, asking the question. How can nuclear energy be a bigger part of, of our security and response to climate change? Those are the two big drivers. And, and the energy security question is really being driven, I believe, in the future by what I would consider uh, great power competition. So why does that paint such, a, such an urgency for us right now? I think markets are are speaking relative to the types of of energy that we want to embed within industries, within the power grid and and other applications, right? the the markets are are telling us, finance folks are telling us, uh, equity folks are telling us, we're going to begin to monetize emission content of everything we do with energy. That includes products that we buy. So that creates a circumstance, along with the the security questions that Todd mentioned, where a number of different markets globally uh, are gonna be disrupted, right? There's an opportunity for new entrants to come in with with more efficient means of production, whether it be chemicals, whether it be uh, manufactured goods or or whatnot. The United States needs to, to establish leadership position in those changing markets, because the decisions that are made uh, that are, that are based on energy, energy use and manufacturing and such. And and the position, the competitive position that that's going to provide around the globe, those decisions are going to be made now. And they're going to have a very long tail. They're going to have a generations, multi-generation long tail. So it's it's, incredibly important that the united states do what we can to step up and lead in what i consider this new frontier of economic competition that economic competition is this intersection of low emission economic activity overlaid on great power competition so in the end if we can help if we can help our our especially our regional Uh, first movers in say nuclear energy, develop a position in global markets based on a value proposition that increases our security and and lowers our emission footprint. That's gonna put the U.S. in a better position. And that in the end is not just a a regional economic development uh, value, that's a value for national security. So you ask the question, why do we feel a sense of urgency? there should be a sense of urgency because we are right. We, as a country, are right at the forefront of this new frontier of competition.
2: I think if I could add on to what Steve said, and it comes back to your Korea question, the other thing that's happening is there's a lot of countries that are showing an interest in in nuclear technology that may have never used it before. If you go back to, to the way that Japan and Korea built out their nuclear power programs, it was very much... In strong partnership uh, with the United States. So we were very happy with the safety protocols that they use and the security protocols. And to Steve's point, if we're moving into new markets internationally, another advantage of being engaged, okay, is that we can help those countries develop safety processes, security processes around using the technology that are consistent uh, with the US and that we're comfortable with. And in order to make that engagement, we have to figure out, What's their economic drivers, right? What What is their vision of the future use of energy, right? So it gets very much back to the, the type of approaches that Emma's trying to use. And it goes beyond what we have talked about nationally into how we deploy nuclear internationally.
1: Yeah, and Jason, just one addition to what Todd said as well, and maybe it gets back to part of your, your prior question. Those questions aren't just about nuclear energy either. So like Todd said, as we go about you know, working with stakeholders and such and, and understanding deployment needs and how we address that dual challenge of, of competitiveness uh, based on emission content and security. Sometimes the answer is not nuclear energy. Sometimes it's a combination of nuclear energy combined with, with other energy sources. And sometimes, you know, we need to think about what are better ways of powering different processes altogether are going about a different industrial manufacturing activity differently. So by definition, we're looking beyond nuclear energy, but we do have a, a sense that advanced nuclear energy, especially in these different applications that, that Todd talked about, might just be in many cases a key that unlocks this door to much greater competitiveness in this new Landscape that we're moving into, so it's it's really an exciting, really is an exciting time. All
0: right, I want to thank you for both uh, answering the question. I want to, but I want to ask you both to play a little bit more or continue the thought a little bit further. So, the thinking here is that, and I think you're getting at, is that it's not just aspirational, it's sort of this new role of nuclear in, in our new frontier, but there may be an active role, not just aspirational. So, maybe Todd, start with you. You know, from a near-term perspective, what are some signs of EMMA's impact that we all should be, say, looking for? And
2: Steve, any thoughts to add to that above and beyond what Todd covers would be great. Yeah, I think the thing I would point out is if you go back roughly three years when we started this um, and just look at what's happening in the US states, right? so Steve mentioned previously, you know, initial focus through a partnerships in EMMA. Strong, strong look at Alaska and Wyoming. But if I look at what's going on in state legislatures around the country, there is more and more an interest in the possibility of using nuclear energy. So you will see states overturning moratoria that they used to have on using nuclear energy. You have seen states that have transitioned from renewable portfolio standards to zero carbon standards. And right? they're saying it's important to just decarbonize and in that viewpoint you can look at nuclear energy so clearly that's a signal to me that a lot of states as they look forward how are they going to decarbonize what is the the optimal path or in, you know my group's language what's the fastest path to zero carbon you see nuclear as an option and i think in each one of those cases you're going to need an ml like approach to think about what's important to the state what are the values what are their current systems, and there will be opportunities to help them think through this future, right? So I think it's actually growing, and the need for emma like conversations is just going to get more and more important as time goes on. We see the signals.
1: Yeah, and to, uh, just to, to add on to onto that, maybe keeping keeping with the nuclear uh, energy theme as well, we are seeing much more demand and tier. Question: Jason, you know what else might we see? One example, one area that you're going to see us more involved in is a set of conversations and a framework uh, for having those conversations that Todd mentioned. That's being led by NARUC, the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. So, so they have a partnership with the Department of Energy to execute what they call the Advanced Nuclear state collaborative and they've reached out to us in helping design that process and hopefully more in executing that advanced nuclear state cooperative group that group is is focused on a set of states that have really regulators uh and energy authorities in a group of states who have said hey you know we are stakeholders within the state are seeing these energy transitions are seeing the economic potential of advanced nuclear energy in that context. And we'd like to band together to help each other with lessons learned, with capacity development, with uh, best practices in developing nuclear-driven industries and also, also supply chains. That's kind of a big deal when you have 20 different states come together and, and say, hey, we, we want some help in putting together a construct for that sort of thing. The other area I think you're going to see, I know you're going to see quite a lot of activity with our Emma group is part of this broader uh, frontiers initiative, if you will. We just talked about a moment ago this notion that that our country is, is at a new frontier of economic competition. We believe very strongly that's a, a great, opportunity it's an opportunity for uh, US leadership and there's a lot of threats embedded in that so so the sort of framework and the sort of thought process that our Emma team can bring to those conversations is being tapped into more and more and you'll see you'll see us actually publish uh, more on those topics and and hopefully make a big impact on a not just a regional level, but a national and then international level in the coming months and years. Absolutely. And
0: certainly the questions you, you gentlemen are trying to answer are really stretching our brains in, in many directions that really could only be addressed and driven out of uh, the leadership at, at a national lab. So certainly appreciate the work, the tough work you're trying to solve for our country and, uh, and our society. On that note, I'd like to pivot now to what we call our lightning round, which Give us an opportunity to learn a little bit more about you, the person, rather than you, the professional. So we have a, a set of questions, five questions. It's a lightning round, so we, we ask that you keep your, your response to one word or phrase. Uh, we'll start with you, Todd, first, and then, uh, Steve, you can follow up. So question number one, past or present, name the one scientist you most identify with and would invite for lunch. And, of course, give us a little skinny on the on the scientist as well. Todd, go ahead. So I,
2: I, after thinking about this, I'm going with Alvin Weinberg, who was a uh, 1950s uh, Cold War scientist, Oak Ridge National Lab director. And I think he had this very interesting career where he moved from technology to national leadership and programs. Uh, and I give him credit for recognizing that the nuclear in- industry focused very heavily on technology for a long time and didn't pay enough attention to the social issues. So I think he kind of inspired Emma 70 years ahead of time.
1: For me, Jason, that's easy. Maybe a little different choice. It's Teddy Roosevelt. Of course, we think of Teddy as a politician, as a president, but I think of him first as an adventurer. I think of him as a scientist from the time he was a little boy bedbound and doing his, his science experiments all the way to exploring the river of doubt in in South America. So I think actually Teddy exemplifies what we're looking at right now, but on a much different frontier. Okay, back to you, Todd. If you could bring one book or movie with you
2: on a deserted island, what would it be? Yeah, I decided to cheat on this uh, question. So I'm going to go with the Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferrante by claiming that the four novels are actually one. Uh, And this is, she's she's a great author, very engaging, and then I would get Four times as
1: much stuff to read while i'm stuck on the end. over to you steve easy for me i'd i'd take the encyclopedia if that counts <laughs> as one book i could sit and just read that forever and you could use extra volumes to kill fish and stuff you just throw those todd knows me too well A
0: 100 years from now what will our energy mix look like
2: Uh, So I think it's a mix of the zero carbon technology we have. So some wind, some solar, some hydro, some nuclear, some gas with carbon capture. We'll keep getting cleaner. uh, We'll keep getting more affordable. But I I don't think there's any specific one technology that does everything perfectly.
1: I agree with Todd. I, I just used two words, diverse and efficient, maybe with emphasis on efficient. What would an alternative
0: career path be if you hadn't found yourself in the energy industry?
2: I'm going with disc jockey. Uh, I vaguely recall that before I got the ROTC scholarship to, to go to Northwestern i was I was thinking about becoming a disc jockey. That sounds fun,
1: yeah, and if you do that, Todd, uh, I would hire you any day uh, <laughs> me I'm going with uh, I'm going with medicine or environmental science. Fantastic. And the last question all right, so
0: we've landed on the moon, we've turned gas cars into electric. we've lived through pandemics. What do you predict will be the next transformative event?
2: To happen in mankind. Yeah, and I'm not sure this is transformative as much as still um, just part of the process, but I think I'm gonna go with localization of energy production and control. I see people wanting more control, right? This is Emma-like, right? People look at their values and they figure out how can they control their own destiny. And I just see lots of things that are driving towards a more local control model than the sort of central station model.
1: Yeah, and I think I, I think what's gonna drive that is where where my mind immediately goes. It's really uh, not so much as an intersection, but a collision of uh, great power competition and climate change.
0: Well, you both have done very well and you kept the, the provocative thoughts going. So we want to give you the final word and message to give to our audience from today's discussion. What would you like them to take away? Todd, let's start with you.
2: I would say it's that, that energy is very important because it makes people's lives better. What energy we choose is a combination of technology, cost, social acceptance, and public policy levers. And we should approach the world thinking about it that way.
1: I agree with Todd uh, 100%. I would, I would just say, you know, think first, what door, what lock do you want that energy system to unlock for you? What do you want to do with the energy in what context? What are you willing to pay for what attribute? Therefore, think about what's the value of different choices. Fantastic.
0: we want to thank you both for joining us today. And you can be sure that our listeners are buzzing with ideas and questions. So I hope we can count on you to check back in the Energy Central community to follow up on any questions or comments that are left from today's episode. Until then, though, thanks again for sharing your insight with us in today's episode of the podcast. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Steve.
1: Thanks, Jason. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Uh, enjoyed it. As did we. So you can
0: always reach Todd and Steve through the Energy Central platform where they welcome your questions and comments. And we also want to give a shout out of thanks to the podcast sponsor that made today's episode possible. Thanks to West Monroe, West Monroe works for the nation's largest electric, gas, and water utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital workforce transformations. West Monroe brings a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise to address modernizing aging infrastructure, advisory on transportation electrification, ADMS deployments, data analytics, and cybersecurity. And once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. So plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com and we'll see you next time at the Energy Central Power Perspectives Podcast.